0: Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today is a special nonfiction Friday, and I'm going to be talking to Greg Burke about his book, Gay, Catholic, and American, and I want to set up how I met Greg. So I met Greg at the 2023 Louisville Book Festival, where he was an author and exhibitor, and he had a big poster behind him announcing his book, and I've told Greg this story that It took me a minute to get up the courage to go and speak with him because I really wasn't sure where he would fall on any of these subjects. So now I'm going to get a chance to ask him. Welcome, Greg Burke.
1: Well, well, thank you, Dan. It's a a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you invited me today.
0: So this book, again, it's Gay, Catholic, and American. I stepped up to Greg and I thought I had my cool game on and I nervously asked him if he was still Catholic. So Let's talk about the Catholicism portion of your life. So you are still Catholic. Is that correct?
1: That's absolutely correct. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people they call a cradle Catholic. I was born that way. Um, never left the church, been practicing for my entire life. It's been you know, difficult at times. Obviously, I came out um, in 1976 when I was 19. So that was probably some of the roughest times I had in terms of kind of keeping my faith. And um, but you know I've always been able to, to to manage that and and to stay true to it. So yeah, absolutely, I'm still practicing and intend to be for a very long time. Lord willing. Well, I,
0: <laughs> that's right, God willing. I so I applaud you. And and when we talked in Louisville, that was one of the things that I was interested in. Everyone has a different feeling about religion and spirituality and where they fit into those lanes. And I grew up as a free will Baptist, and I would not say it's the most accepting religion, but I learned a lot of great things growing up that way that I use all the way through today. So talk a little bit about your experience of growing up Catholic and what it has meant to you.
1: I had a pretty um, common uh, existence, I think, as a child. I was born into an Irish uh, Catholic family. Um, they are very, very common and prominent down here in the Midwest. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I went to Catholic schools. Um, my three brothers and I have three brothers. We all went to the same school. Um, they were all boys. So obviously we went to same-sex schools and and so i would go through this this process of you know my brothers would precede me and then you know i'd have a bad reputation as soon as i got there but you know that was just part of the whole catholic experience um you know we went to church every weekend my parents uh, and my brothers and i we were one of those families that would uh, go pick up grandparents and take them to church on on Sunday and then after that we'd go to the Catholic cemetery and you know visit the the relatives who'd passed so it was that kind of a you know idyllic I think um Catholic childhood um I went to a Catholic high school and then after that um graduated and went to the University of Louisville for uh which is a local state school here in Kentucky uh, for four years and then after that went to the University of Notre Dame. So you know, I always kept that you know kind of Catholic identity. Um, always practiced, you know, continued to 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 go back and, and to to worship with my with my family whenever I could.
0: The reason I ask about this is because it it was interesting. So your husband Michael DeLeon is also Catholic, and that was that figured into your life when the two of you met. Uh, tell me how you met him, and then. How your faith interacted between the two of you?
1: Well, it's a very romantic story. We met at a gay bar in Lexington. <laughs> we were both uh, <laughs> students at the University of Kentucky, and it, there was exactly this was 1982, so there was exactly one place in town where you know gay folks could actually meet and hang out that was safe. So we met at the bar in Lexington, um, and, and it turned out it was really kind of kind of a coincidence. Um, after we met, we realized that we lived three doors apart on the same street, close to the close to campus. So, you know, it, it made things quite easy to progress from that point on. But, you know, we, we met at a bar, um, you know, it, it was one of those situations where I, I feel like we, we clicked right away and we were hanging out constantly. Um, interestingly, one of the first things we did, although we met in a gay bar, within a couple of weeks, we had started going to church together on Sundays. There's a Catholic church in downtown Lexington, Kentucky, um, St. Paul's that interestingly now has a very active LGBTQ ministry. One of only a couple in the state of Kentucky, but, um, but we met and we started going to church together in 1982, and we have continued to go to church together regularly since 1982. It's been extremely important to us. I think it's helped us a lot in our relationship that that was one more thing that we were able to share. And it mm-hmm. wasn't something that we had to differ on um, in terms mm-hmm. of you know coming from different uh, religious backgrounds and then having to work that out because I think a lot of times couples do struggle with that. But um, you know we were very much in sync and you know I come from a Catholic family as I said. Michael comes from a, a very strong um, Catholic Hispanic family and you know uh, we just managed to to work our faith right into our everyday lives, which was really unusual and uncommon for 1982 and beyond.
0: But that's it works. Uh, I, And it has worked beautifully. And that's one of the nice things that sets up a lot of the rest of the book. I do want to compliment you though, because I think that anytime I meet people who have been in a long-term relationship, I'm always in awe of it and very happy for it, especially if people are on the LGBTQ plus spectrum, because we have our a whole bunch of different things to navigate. And When I nervously ask you in Louisville if you were still Catholic, a great deal of that is because, as I said earlier, I wasn't sure where you would fall on. I'm happily Catholic. I hated being Catholic or somewhere in between. And it's really nice to see a story that highlights the fact that here are two people who've come together, that their faith made them stronger together. And that's a really great thing.
1: Right. Well, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It hasn't been easy. It's been quite difficult. You know, the Catholic churches and individual people in the Catholic church have, have made it difficult for, for me and for us at times. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, in addition to some of the things we've talked about, I, I think you know this, we have two adopted children and we raised our children Catholic, sent them to Catholic schools. And so we had to navigate, you know, all of those waters as as openly gay Catholics as parents, as our kids went through Catholic school too. So it added a whole extra layer of complexity. And there were some real, there were some difficult times, but mm-hmm. you know, we always felt like, um, given our backgrounds and our families, that, you know, your faith is, is one of the most, if not the most important thing in your life. And so it's like, you have to keep working on that. Um, even when it's difficult, even when you have challenges, it's like, you just, you don't walk away from, from your faith and so on. I've tried to not do that. And I think I've done my best. And and Michael has done the same. And it's remarkable that we've been able to do that together.
0: And you've worked within the system. So many systems are broken or have issues or complexities, but you've worked within the system rather than going on the outside and trying to work on it from the outside. You've chosen to stay in. And that's, to me, that's important. So some people will know because they have heard me on uh, another podcast that I'm involved with, Queer Magnolias podcast, and there I'm of the four of us, I'm the only one who grew up in a religious environment or a continual religious environment, and I don't besmirch it. I mean, it has its issues, but as I said, I came away with a lot of good things from it that I like to keep and. My family is by far extraordinarily religious and on the very conservative side but they love and support me. That becomes an added layer of comfort for me. I know we differ in opinions but I still have that comfort of being accepted. Which right. is important is important to me. It, some people don't care i care so yeah, that's I care. why i applaud that so i know it it can't well, have always been easy
1: <laughs> and, and i will say you know and you just reference this it's like one of the things that really helped michael and me and our relationship over 41 years almost 42 years together is that um, our families were so welcoming and accepting from the start so you got to think about that you know back in the early 1980s where we had two catholic families and all of a sudden they have gay sons, and they're involved in a relationship. And our families were inclusive, even then. And I mean, I know the church has evolved a lot since the 80s. But, um, you know, to to get that kind of support in an early stage in our relationship, and then to sustain it um, over the years, I mean, that that helped us so much. And I know, I know, not everybody gets that. But I just figured that's one of um, the many blessings that God gave me in this life.
0: Well, and it's nice to have someone highlight that because we have we see that a lot of people have suffered at the hands of religion, but not everyone has. And to have someone highlighted, and as you have said, it won't always easy. But that <laughs> you you get to pick and choose sometimes the good times. So that's right,
1: right. Point. Yeah, I don't know if I if I mentioned this to you before, but while we were at that book festival, and this happens to me a lot, um, I spent more time talking to people who were, you know, estranged Catholics or, you know, people who've stepped away from the faith. Some of them were part of the LGBTQ community and some were not. Some were just, you know, estranged Catholics. And so many people have a lot of issues with the Catholic Church. And I get that. It's not just, you know, the queer issue. It's like the the issue with women in leadership over the sexual abuse scandal. There are so many reasons why people have left church. And I can tell you, they're all that. And, you know, I support anyone who feels that way 100%. Um, it's just that I never got into one of those positions where I felt like I had to walk away or that I needed to walk away for a very specific reason. Instead, I always, and Michael and I both, have always had this more compelling reason that um, if something's wrong, then we need to stay and do what we can, you know, to advocate to improve it. So, you know, that's what we do. But I spend a lot of time at that book festival and Michael and I um, also spend a lot of time, you know, just talking to people, trying to help them reconcile some of their differences that they've had with the Catholic church or with any faith, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I feel like nearly all queer people have just been pushed and pushed and pushed outside of, of the whole religious community um and and so what we really need to do is start you know pushing our way back in because there is there has to be a place for us there i mean if it's not there we need to make it and and i know things have changed so much in the last you know 10 to 20 years and there are so many great welcoming communities now but but what i really want to see over the you know the coming years and what few i have left would be to see queer people starting to come back to the churches, you know, and and be present and visible and and engage and and just be be part of the community.
0: I agree. And I think, you know, ever how you express your spirituality, um, to me it's important because spirituality has played a key role in my life. Not necessarily organized religion. I've done it many times, many different faiths. But the spirituality part is the part that speaks to me because it speaks to my soul. And how we get nourished is very important because when we don't get nourished as a human being, I find that we we create a lot of negativity around ourselves. I'm not trying to gloss it over, but it, to me, it's important as well. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I asked you before we started recording, if I said to you that I feel like Greg is the Uh, average, everyday Greg man of the world who's done a lot of extraordinary things. So let's talk about some of the other things I think that you sort of got put into a role of activist uh, and leader and in so many different ways. So let's talk a little bit about the Boy Scouts of America.
1: Right. So I never intended to to be a Boy Scout leader, but when you, you know, when you're when your six-year-old son comes home from school, you know, with a flyer that says everybody in my class is joining the Cub Scouts. I want to join too. Then all of a sudden it's like you have a decision point that you have to make. And and I think I explained this in my book. The first year our son came home with the flyer, we said, no, we don't think that's a good idea. The Boy Scouts have a long reputation. And Michael and I, my husband and I were both Boy Scouts, by the way. But um, when our son wanted to join, we were very concerned about what, he might be exposed to what kind of lessons he might get because we knew the Boy Scouts had, you know, a, a pretty poor reputation when it came to inclusivity and especially with excluding, um, you know, gay scouts. Mm-hmm. So we were concerned about it, and we said, "No, we're not going to do that." Well, eventually, you know, as a six-year-old will do, he beat us down, and, and we let him <laughs> we let him join the Cub Scouts. And then one of the things about scouting the scouting program is, especially in the very early years. Um, if you have a Cub Scout, you have to have a parent there, right there with that Scout or another responsible adult, um, every minute of the of the time that they're involved. So that meant that we needed to get involved in Cub Scouting, and then ultimately, that led to a position, you know, within a couple of years where um, our leader quit. And so we needed to have someone else step up and, and be a scout leader. And so you know, fool that I am, you know, I raised my hand and I said, okay, if nobody else is going to do it, you know, I'll be happy to do that. Really not realizing what I was getting into. But then, you know, it became it became a passion for me. I became a Cub Scout leader. I became then a Weed blow leader. And then I was a, a, a Boy Scout leader, um, you know, probably for over 10 years um, before I finally reached the point where it's just like, I couldn't. I couldn't deal with the um kind of the situation i mean i was openly gay um as a parent of my child at, at um, my kids schools you know michael and i were both openly gay the scouts were aware that i was you know i was gay um the, the parents of the scouts were aware that i was gay but it was an odd situation because i had to you know do the don't ask don't tell thing with the people at the at the scout council I and mean, then with the boy scout bureaucracy so it was a very uncomfortable situation because i knew that if i if i revealed myself to to the boy scouts organization that i would be removed but i know that i knew that um, a lot of the scouts and a lot of the scout families were depending on me as a leader to you know to help keep the program going and keep it running so it's like somebody had to do it um, finally, I got to the point where that was no longer acceptable to me and, you know, I, I approached the, the Boy Scouts of America and, you know, shortly after that, um, I was, I was forced to resign my position as a, as a Scoutmaster, unfortunately. That led to a whole, that, so that was really kind of my start um, <laughs> as an activist because once that happened, you know, it started to get media attention and then, you know, national organizations started to pick up on it and, you and so I had to make a decision about: like, Am I just going to try to be quiet and let this go, or am I going to really draw attention to this and, and try to bring some change as a result of it? And you know, after thinking about it for a while, I decided: Well, I might as well try to you know make lemonade out of lemons here. You know, something bad happened, and it's like: Well, okay, what can what can I do about it? And that's when I got involved with um, with a whole movement, the for Scotch- equality movement. Um, GLAD, some other national organizations uh, were very prominent in, you know, trying to to move the needle on the Boy Scouts of America and their policy towards um, gay inclusion. Um, And it took a while. It took us a couple of years, but, you know, eventually we were able to get the membership policies changed, you know, both for gay youth and then also for, you know, gay and lesbian adult leaders who are now able to serve in the Boy Scouts of America. But, um, yeah, it was a, it was quite a, a turbulent few, few years, um, you know, and, and it was sad because it really was the scouts of my unit that suffered the most as a result of it, you know, because there was a lack of leadership then after I had to step away.
0: I find that, you know, in reading your story, I, I kept, that very thing kept talking to me that the fact that while all of this is going on and you as an adult, are trying to resolve things, move the needle with the Boy Scouts of America, they don't, oh, I really hope not to be offensive, but they don't care enough what happens with your unit or on the local level because they had an ax to grind, making sure that they kept control. And that was frustrating. I didn't know your name specifically years ago, but I remember the media attention around the Boy Scouts of America and your, your particular case while I couldn't name you until I read your book, I knew about it. So, but it was one of those things. It's like you stayed inside and you worked inside once again to make to effect a change.
1: Well, so, I continued,
0: Mr. You. Activist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean that was my start, uh, and and I continued to to advocate for change, and I still do because even now the policy is not where it should be, even though it is, you know. It's, it's possible for, for gay men and, and lesbian women to serve as adult leaders. They can only do it at units that allow that. And units, each individual unit has the authority to establish their own membership policy. So, you know, many, many units have decided not to allow, you know, gays and lesbians to serve as leaders. Now, they, they can't do that with the boys. So they, they still have to allow gay youth. That is a That is a BSA-wide policy, but as far as as adult leaders, you know, there's still room there for for improvement. And and I hope, and I talk about it, and other people talk about it too. That is still one more policy that the Boy Scouts need to change to be fully inclusive.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, just so all the listeners know, there are always two adults at all of these meetings and all of these outings. There are always two adults. And it's important to, to... to really put that out there that as long as there are two adults there, there's balances and checks. It's, it's what we do in business, what we do in government, it's what the right. Boy Scouts of America does. They put this into place because they realize they don't want one person overly influencing the group. So I, And I love mm-hmm. the fact that they already know that they need to be inclusive as far as two adults go.
1: So you, th- they've done that for quite some time. It's a, p- a policy called too deep leadership. It's required. So you can't have a meeting or any type of activity without two adult leaders. Um, you know, it has to be. And there's also the other, the other caveat of no one-on-one contact. So that means like no one, okay, the meeting's over. I'm going to drive this boy home or I'm going to wait until the parent comes. It's always too deep leadership. And that is to protect not just the scouts, but to Absolutely. protect the adults. So I was always incredibly you know stringent about that because i knew that I was in a particularly vulnerable situation if anybody wanted to ever you know tr- you know try to make any claims it's like I needed to protect myself and make sure that i always had another adult with me when I was in the presence of scouts so um you know it, it's for the benefit of, of the scouts as well as the adults
0: absolutely it's and it's a great requirement i mean mm-hmm. i it's really really a great requirement then that leads into sort of yet another caveat of your life, which is your, uh, you and Michael, was it you sued the state of Ohio to recognize your marriage? Is that correct?
1: Of Kentucky, right? State of Kentucky. Kentucky so, uh, Sorry. Uh, well, it's close. It's just over the river, but it's not far away. Um, you know, uh, it, it really came about in kind of a peculiar way. So first of all, I should point out that Michael and I got legally married in Ontario, Canada, In 2004, so you know, from 2004 to 2012, when we filed our lawsuit, you know, our our marriage was not legally recognized in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. But what what was happening was um, just after the Windsor decision at the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, and then the Prop 8 decision. They were announced at the same time. Um, a door suddenly came open where a lot of people started you know, looking at states that had bans and prohibitions. And in the state of Kentucky, we had a constitutional amendment that banned same-sex marriage. And we looked at that and based on what we saw, um, we thought there was a legitimate challenge that the state of Kentucky should have to recognize our legal marriage from Canada. So, um, I mean, it wasn't our idea. There were a couple of attorneys here in town who put out feelers all over town. Um, they wanted to bring a case forward to challenge Kentucky's constitutional amendment. These two attorneys, you know, they they worked it, they talked, you know, they went through all the channels with the LGBT organization and, and some of the employer groups and um, nobody really wanted to, to get involved um, or very few people did. Mm-hmm. So it took a while, and so Michael and I, you know, we were approached, and we said, "Well, we're not sure we want to do this, but you know, we'll think about it for a while." And we waited and waited, and and then, you know, nobody else stepped up. So that's when we said, "Well, okay, if nobody else is going to do it, then I suppose that you know, we'll have to take this on." But I can't say that we were originally very enthusiastic about it. Nor did we ever dream, did we ever dream that we would be part of a Supreme Court case, Um, you know. you know, I'll tell you honestly, I was at that point quite ignorant about the way the the cases even moved through the courts and how they went through the federal system. Um, I got schooled very quickly, but, um, you know, I I didn't, you know, I did, we never thought when we filed that lawsuit that we were going to end up in the United States Supreme Court, you know, having our case argued in front of those justices. And then, you know, we would actually get a positive ruling. Um, We were just suing for recognition in the state of kentucky i mean that's that's all we wanted um it turned out it you know led to something much bigger than that
0: so will you share with the listeners uh what was the impetus uh well i am all sort of do it in advance so you didn't have all of the rights to your adoptive children that michael had and Correct. it your it, here's my estimation your marriage was 100 percent legitimate period, end of story. So should your adoptive rights have been as well. But you didn't have that ability. One of you was technically the parent, and you, Greg, had no legitimate right to your children should something happen to Michael. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. So let me explain kind of the catch-22 situation that we were in. When we adopted our two children, um, the Commonwealth of Kentucky will not allow two unmarried people to, be, to co- co-adopt and be listed on the birth certificate. So we because we weren't recognized as married, although we were legally married in Canada, the state of Kentucky didn't recognize that marriage. And they said, well, you can't both be you know adoptive parents. So only one of us could do that. So in our case, Michael became the adoptive parent for our two children. And we did that because he had a really rich adoption benefit through his employer, G- G- General Electric. So we just said, okay, well, well, we'll do that. But then after the fact, we took some steps to um, try to establish some kind of relationship. So I was a legal guardian to the children. Mm-hmm. And Michael made, um, made some, some directives in his will such that if something happened to him, you know, the children would to stay in my custody and all that. But I'll tell you, you know, in family court in Kentucky, it's like anything can happen. And there was no guarantee that if something had happened to Michael for all those years, that I was raising those kids as a parent. If something happened to happen to him, there was no guarantee that the Kentucky uh, Commonwealth, of Kentucky Family Court was going to let me keep those kids. So it was really kind of a difficult uh, situation. And I'll tell you, we weren't the only ones. We, there were quite a few other families like ours, even in Kentucky, um, where there were you know, adoptive families, and then people that had kids, and then subsequently got involved in relationships. There were a lot of a lot of these, you know queer families. And Mm -hmm. a lot of families were at risk because the state of Kentucky would not allow our marriages to be recognized. And it not just put, um, you know, me at risk, but it put our children at risk. You know, their stability of having, you know, a parent that had been in their lives, you know, their whole life, um, you know, it it would have been possible to have those children taken away from me. I mean, it's it's just a, a a mind-boggling thing to even talk about now that that a parent would have to face a situation like that but that's what we were in so the state wouldn't recognize our marriage and because they wouldn't recognize our marriage we couldn't co-adopt so that's what our lawsuit was about we wanted to participate in this lawsuit so that the state of kentucky would recognize our marriage and we would be able to co-adopt our children now keep in mind they were probably they were i think 15 and 16 by the time we filed the lawsuit. And then it took, you know, a couple of extra years after that, actually three years to to get past all that. Um, So but we thought it was important, you know, for our sake. uh, And we thought there was an opportunity based on what we saw in the Supreme Court um, as a result of the of the Windsor and Prop 8 cases. So it's like, you know, we saw the opportunity and we took it and, and we're glad we did.
0: Well, and I'm glad you did as well. And in reading your book, you, f- the reader feels these emotions, Greg. You know, I I understood exactly where you and Michael were coming from as parents. I could feel the angst. Um, you do so well at describing that in the book, and and you can feel it. And then, of course, the joy of the outcome of Ogre. Ooh, I knew I was going to mess it up. Ogre oh, Obergefell. Oh, Thank you. So I'm still messing it up. Versus Hodges. So it was. Let me, I, was you, just- let me
1: tell you something interesting about that. So um, the the way that the way that case got named. Um, so there were four states who were part of the appeal process, you know, Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky and Tennessee. And we all got we, we had all of our cases heard at, at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals at the same time. And, you know, we all got overturned. And so each of those four states individually Appeal to the United States Supreme Court. And the state of Ohio was the first to, to get their appeal lodged. The state of Kentucky was next. If Kentucky had been six minutes sooner in file, filing our appeal to the Supreme Court, it would have been called Burke versus Bashir, which would have been a whole lot easier to say than a burger. <laughs>
0: Yes, it would. Have. It would. Have. I mean, I, I will ask Jim to forgive me for mangling his last name. So.
1: <laughs> I think he has trouble with it sometimes.
0: <laughs> I will say that I, I've heard it pronounced more than one way. Of course, none of the ways that I pronounce it. I just get to be unique and I love that. So um, in a couple of minutes remaining, I'd like to ask your opinion on the 2022 uh, Respective Marriage Act is do you feel that's a good thing or not a good thing do you feel protected or do you feel a little bit vulnerable
1: um i actually feel a a lot more protected Uh, and i know there were some different opinions on that um but i do feel like it was good to, to codify that i mean i do also recognize that um same-sex marriage rights are, are at risk now, especially in light of the Dobbs decision. If the Supreme Court decided to take up some, take up a challenge, um, it's unclear what might happen as a result of that. I do um, take comfort in the fact, and a lot of people have asked about, well, you know, what about uh, Justice Thomas's remarks in this call that, you know, perhaps it should be revisited again. Um, and, and, you know, my response to that was, well, when he, when he issued that opinion, um, no other justice joined him in that. So I think there's a lot more respect, perhaps, or maybe some more respect for same-sex marriage rights that perhaps, you know, they're not as um, at risk as far as the Supreme Court is concerned. So I take some comfort in that. But, um, you know, anything can happen. If you'd asked me 10 years ago if I thought Roe v. Wade was going to get overturned, I would have said absolutely not, you know, know, 5% or less chance. And here we are. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I do feel a little m- more comfortable now that we we have the Respect for Marriage Act, um, and and I'm you know I'm hopeful things are going to continue to kind of solidify around same-sex marriage. It does seem to get more and more, you know, mainstream as time goes mm-hmm. by. You know, and I'm hopeful that that continues. Now I'm surprised we haven't talked about it yet. What about the good news yesterday from the Vatican? The Vatican. That- <laughs> announced that, that priests are now um able to bless same sex marriages, which is, you know, a huge it's, leap forward. It is a
0: huge leap forward. It's not perfect, but it's moving us in the right direction. Right, and you know, right. I'm it it gives me a lot of hope. You know,
1: I, it's I love it hearing the hope. I do. I do. I love it because <laughs> I'm talking to other people, and I, like, I'm seeing on social media people saying, "Well, you know, it's that whole skim milk thing. It's, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's not the real thing. It's second class. It's whatever." But it's like, you know, I, I, i I'm still, I can't help celebrating it. I mean, I think I've been waiting for something like this to happen for so long out of the Vatican, and it just has not been there. Um, we've gotten little glimpses from from the Pope over the last, you know, ten years. Um, You know, he's made some really wonderful inclusive statements, but then he said some really strange offensive things, too. But, um, you know, this is now policy. And, you know, I think it's extremely important and it does signal where he wants the church to go. So I'm really happy about it. I I am,
0: too. And, you know, it's a it's a big shift. Uh, It's it's something that now all of the world, all of the Catholics of the world, have to be including this because this is now do you call it the law or it is it's come down from the high up i mean it's such a wonderful thing we've we're moving in the right direction we still have a ways to go but any step in the right direction i'm all for it
1: i am too you know it's like yesterday i was looking at social media and there were some naysayers out there and uh, i was thinking about the way people started reacting when civil unions first started getting offered you know maybe 20 years ago and Mm -hmm. all the complaints about well you know it's like you know it's it's not the same thing you know it's second class it's whatever but you know what it's a start you know and you got to start somewhere and then you can build on that and build on that i have seen a lot of great changes in the catholic church and especially especially in the last 10 years there have been ministries that have been launched um, at Catholic parishes. Um, there are We now have some actual leaders in the American Catholic Church who are advocating for, for queer inclusion. Um, we didn't have that 10 years ago. So, I mean, there's a movement. It's starting. And, you know, I think it's only going to continue to grow as time goes by.
0: I agree with you. And once again, I'm going to, to congratulate you and thank you because you and Michael stayed inside and you worked from inside, Uh, each little step and each little positive movement affects the hierarchy in this world. That is just the way life does. There are times we have to fight, we have to get out in the street and fight and work for what we get. But there are also plenty of opportunities to work from the inside and to try to make a positive difference. If people see us as being part of the solution then that gives us hope, gives all of us hope on both sides. So it's it's not perfect, it's not perfection or perfect, but it's a step in the right direction. Amen. <laughs> I So Greg knows I already fanboyed a little bit with him via email and stuff. So this book, Gay, Catholic and American has been such a wonderful read and I've just enjoyed it. Cannot recommend it enough. We've talked about some things from this book, but there are plenty more things in this book that we haven't had a chance to get around to. So I encourage anybody who really wants to see what an activist, who didn't start as an activist, life is about. Greg's book is perfect. Do you have a website or social media that you'd like to share?
1: Well, absolutely. I'm active on social media I'm uh, under my name greg burke on facebook gregory burke on instagram Um, i'm out on linkedin um if you want to pick up the book you can pick it up on amazon it's also available at the university of notre dame press and i think that's so important that this book was published by my alma mater the university of notre dame and i can tell you it is the first queer friendly book that they have ever published and so i think it's extremely important um, to recognize that, that when institutions like that, that have these long histories of, you know, being conservative and even anti, anti-gay, anti um, you know, finally start, you know, letting some things happen, um, I think that's extremely important. But You can pick up the book at the University of Notre Dame Press website um, or on Amazon. So I encourage anybody to, you know, connect with me on social media and, uh, you know, if you have any questions or would like to talk, just, you know, reach out to me.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Greg, for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you having me on today. Perfect. Hang on for me just a second.
0: Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out With Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at OutWithDan.com, on Twitter at OutWithDan, and on Instagram and Facebook at Go Out with Dan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out with Dan.